working on this as a team, you know, that we're providing everything that we can for them because it is a critical time of members having to reuse personal protective equipment. We do have first responders who are camping out in motels right now or staying in their garage and tents or not seeing their family supports uh, like their spouses or their loved ones and their kids. We unfortunately in our line of work see things that sometimes most humans should never see. And because of that, people store that information in parts of their brain and maybe they can suppress it for a while, but eventually it will come back out. everybody, welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and we just need to start this episode by saying thank you. In April, you made this show a hit, listening to episodes at three times the rate of any previous month. Your feedback, comments, and social shares give us the momentum to keep stepping up our game. It's truly important right now that we gain a shared understanding of COVID-19's impact on our people, our systems, our policies, and our places. We're going through this together. The learning is real time. No corner of our communities goes untouched. And that includes the people whose very job it is to help us, which is why we're back today with an episode focused on our first responders. There's been a lot of coverage of frontline healthcare workers, but little to no discussion of how frontline police, fire, and emergency medical services personnel are doing. This episode is for them. You're about to hear some stunning examples of how an already very stressful and challenging job is now much more stressful and learn what is being done to address that reality. The human beings we rely upon to help us in an emergency are facing their own unique health challenges, particularly now. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about the lives and health of first responders in the new era of COVID-19. Today we have a tremendous group of people in the room. I'm going to start off by introducing you to Dr. Dara Rampasad. Doctor, how are you? I'm great, John. Thank you very much. From Surprise, we have Chief Jesus Rivera. Jesus, how are you today? Hey, John. I'm doing very well. Thank you. From the city of Goodyear, Chief Paul Luizzi. Paul, how are you? Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. And from Vitalist, Melanie Mitros, Director of Strategic Community Partnerships. Melanie, how are you today? Hey, John. Doing good. And we're here today for a great conversation about our first responders in this time of COVID-19. All right, let's start at the beginning, shall we? September of 2018, a guy named Neil Vigil, who's a second-year UA medical student, all of a sudden does a little bit of research and finds out some pretty startling statistics about EMTs in Arizona. Their risk for suicide is 39% higher than the general public, among other things. Melanie, tell us about what that research brought to the fore how it played out across emergency responders and what it led to in terms of new coalition building and new work here in Arizona. This research that the University of Arizona brought forward about emergency medical services is really important for us to recognize that our first responders are often dealing with the same types of mental health conditions, the same type of situations that our military are. So we've had a lot of conversations about military around suicide and mental health. 
And this research study really kind of helped for Arizona bring it to the forefront that our first responders here locally, our firefighters, our police officers, our dispatchers, our EMTs, they are dealing with the same types of conditions. So with that, DHS began setting up the Emergency Medical Services Resiliency website. Several of our fire departments began implementing new practices, working with their employer assistance programs. Some have joined Firestrong as a resource online to be able to work with. And then even others have joined in with Bulletproof, another one for our police officers and law enforcement. So those are just a couple of pieces that we've started to see emerge. And John, that's the reason why we wanted to have the rest of the team here today to talk more about what's going on in Arizona. All right. So the acronym police are here already. DHS stands for Department of Health Services. All right. And then talk a little bit more about the two programs you mentioned. Both of these are membership online platforms. So actually, the city of Goodyear is a member of the FireStrong online program. This online program enables the firefighters, the police officers, law enforcement officers to be able to go directly to the Firestrong website or to the Bulletproof website, and they can access peer support teams, they can access the chaplain team, they can access mental health assessment. There's all kinds of information about depression, about post-traumatic stress disorder, resiliency. And the great part is that these first responders can go directly to the websites and access this information and connect to resources without the stigma of having to go through their senior officers, through their fire chiefs, they're able to directly connect and start to get resources without that stigma. Chief Luisi, why is that important? Help people understand what the culture is within your members, why it's important to have this ready access. There is a stigma among all first responders that they can just fight through it, they can tough it out, they shouldn't show their emotions. But in reality, what happens is people are suffering We unfortunately, in our line of work, see things that sometimes most humans should never see. And because of that, people store that information in parts of their brain, and maybe they can suppress it for a while, but eventually it will come back out. And so if you think about a pot that is being filled with water, eventually when it gets to the top, it will start to spill over the sides. And your mental health is very similar. There's an amount of information that we can take in and there's amount of scenes that we can take in, but eventually that will spill over and you develop a stress reaction to it. So it's really important that our members have different avenues to be able to connect. We have a non-contract psychologist that works with our department. We also have Firestrong that is available to our memberships. And we also offer the EAP program through our healthcare network. Those different avenues are used individually by each of our folks because some feel more comfortable with a psychologist, others feel better working with a peer in another fire department that they've never met before, but that can listen really well to them and understand what they've gone through. So I think it's important that they have ready access to all the different platforms and be able to really choose what works best for them and then what helps them be the most successful in their career. Hey, Suze, what does this look like in Surprise? Are you all using the same similar platforms and are you finding that they are contributing well to the well-being of your members? 
Yeah, surprise, we do have very similar processes where we have a fire strong peer support chaplain. We make sure that our folks have access to immediate care when they need it most and that we have people trained to help navigate them to those resources. If it's going to a facility, if it's following the Craig Tiger Act and making sure that they get the appropriate paperwork filled out through the city so that we can have access to psychologists that we prefer to use for whatever our situation is. Like Chief Louise mentioned, we want to go see a psychologist, if we want to talk to a peer, if we want to go to a facility, we want to talk to somebody that we don't know from another department that can relate, then that's what we would use. The most important thing is that we make our members comfortable that we let them know that it's okay, that we need to talk about these things. Because as we came up through the fire service, a lot of us didn't talk about a lot of things. We just talked about it after the call and made sure that, hey, we're okay to to go back to work, to respond to the next call, to go available on radio and take whatever's next and go get dinner and proceed with the day. But the truth is there's a lot of damage that happens that can occur if you're not talking about it. And so we just want to let everybody know that it is okay to, to talk about it. I got to rewind there for a second. The Craig Tiger Act? Yeah, the Craig Tiger Act. It's Arizona Revised Statute 38673, where an individual is entitled to 12 initial visits with the option for 24 additional visits within the first year. Depends on how the city or agency you're working for, how they incorporate that into their policies. But essentially, it provides support and allows the member to have access to a provider of choice to help get them through whatever the situation is. There's different criteria that could be outlined. Somebody, a public safety member, has witnessed the death of a peer or has been endangered themselves or has had deadly force used against them or has witnessed or been involved in in the drowning of a child. Then those are usually some traumatic events that would qualify for that uh, benefit. Dr. Rampasad, can you sort of take us across the entire valley, Arizona, and even the country in terms of first responders and their well-being? You know, this term first responders is such a broad term that encompasses so many professions that work well together, but they also have very specific needs that are endemic to that population. And so if we were just to talk about law enforcement, for instance, from a law enforcement base, which is very similar to fire in terms of the types of needs and the experiences that they have, I think that Chief Luizzi, as well as Chief Rivera mentioned, these are people that are exposed to trauma on the job. It doesn't mean that they're going to suffer post-traumatic stress from it because you can have trauma without getting post-traumatic stress. You get exposed to trauma a lot more on the job than you do developing post-traumatic stress. And the way that we assist people who do have these traumatic sorts of events, the same no matter if it's local or nationally, it all falls amongst a certain line of work called peer support or critical incident stress debriefing. Different agencies would use different names for it. But if you look nationally at EMS workers, as well as fire, as well as law enforcement, the suicide rates of these populations have all increased past line of duty deaths. And I think that is probably one of the most poignant things that we have all been working as a team on uh, locally and nationally to try to assist and prevent. And this comes from unexamined stress that is built up over time, just like Chief Rivera just said.
when we have firefighters and law enforcement personnel, EMS providers, corrections officers, nurses, these are our highest groups of suicide in the first responder population. And so we are trying our best to see what we could do preemptively, just like Chief Louisi has done to employ services of an external provider, which is a psychologist, as well as have his own internal peer support. A fair number of the guys that I work with in my private practice, they have trust issues. And so they want to make sure that if they share something with you, it's not going to reflect badly on their profession or on their ability to fulfill their work. Sometimes in the law enforcement world, uh, you hear guys joking around saying that they don't want to be part of the rubber gun squad, which is just assigned to desk duty and they have no firearms capabilities. I'm glad to see that that conversation is changing a lot now nationally where I have many officers that I work with who come for therapy and even are on medications and they still have a full capability to be able to function as an officer as well as uh, firefighters who don't get desk duty because they have an illness or because they have a stress response. We're starting to see a real shift in the way that things are happening nationally and luckily globally where people are actually reaching out for help now and they're realizing that it is not a bad thing to do that because you're not going to get marginalized for getting help. Not to sound like an impersonal or cold question, but Is Arizona trending worse than the United States, the same as the United States as a whole, better than? And if so, why or why not? I think that we are ahead uh, by far. Just in terms of this Craig Tiger Act that was started, Craig Tiger was the officer that died by suicide. That there legislatively put us in the position through advocacy to be able to assist our sworn personnel much more than any other state that I know of. And I've worked in a lot of states and I've lived in a lot of states as well as do national work. I don't know any other state that has such an act that is able to provide services up front for our guys when they need help. I can think of no other thing that would be good to be better at than other states than this. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah. Where is the work now, Melanie, in terms of how to coordinate resources in a way that it reaches all sworn personnel, all healthcare workers who are first responders? particularly as we look at the new age that we're in of COVID-19. Before Dr. Barbaro left University of Arizona and the Department of Health Services as the medical director, he had brought me into a conversation about two years ago, so right after this research came out, and was starting to raise this conversation of how do we start to have a more holistic approach around this. Dr. Dara can provide some insight on that. I am on a nonprofit organization called EMS Help. This is with James Hayden and a lot of other distinguished folks. And the work that we are doing is based upon that statistic of that 39% greater chance of death by suicide in EMS. Nationally, once again, things are are different because you have some EMS folks who are embedded within a fire department. And so they are actually firefighters that run on AMBOs. And then you have different fire departments that have just fire alone. And then they have EMS contractors that they work with and stand alone like AMR, et cetera, et cetera. Their needs and their integration is very different because some standalone EMS companies may not actually fully integrate within FIO because they have their own response that they take care of. With EMS help, 
with the stuff that I am seeing, and specifically to your question as far as a COVID-19 response, Melanie, I think that what I have witnessed myself, as well as in many conversations I've had with my first responders, is that folks are fed up with the sensitivity to COVID-19. They're frustrated of having to live in isolation. And as you could guess, as human beings, we're pretty social. And so people have a, a need and a drive to want to connect. And so we have people who are saying, hey, you know what, I could die from other things on my job that are much more scary than COVID-19. I am a healthy adult and I could get the flu and I will be fine. And so it is not necessarily something that I've seen people very afraid of who are first responders. It doesn't mean that they're not using PPE to be able to protect themselves. It's just that I don't know that they are as paranoid as the general public would be. Chief Rivera, you're right here on the front lines of all this right now. With your personnel, are you getting direct feedback of, hey, on the news, people applaud us as first responders, but in our personal lives, they're avoiding us? Yeah, they're definitely having a variety of of everything that's been mentioned there. I think some of it, too, is not knowing what we're exposed to when responding to some of these calls. Some of our members having just slight bit of fear of taking whatever they may have with them to their house, especially when they find out that some people may carry the virus without being symptomatic. So that causes a little bit of frustration, anxiety. Some of our members talking about setting up tents in the garage and, and staying in there for a couple of weeks after you know certain calls. But the truth is, uh, every day we're running on different patients that exhibit symptoms of COVID-19. You know, it's just kind of the unknown. Like, when will this end? When can we get past this and get back to normal life. And I think a lot of societies like that right now, especially with first responders, there's more of a concern because they may be considered or looked at as the person carrying the virus. You know, I had one of our members the other day say that they stopped in at the store to grab a sandwich. When they walked in there, you know, people were wearing masks and they did not have their mask on at the time. And so they felt kind of like they needed to run out of the store and grab their mask for fear that people were looking at them like they may be the one bringing the virus into the store. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. Chief Louisi, similar for your personnel, are they having these experiences? Yeah, I think uh, early on, because there was so much information that was flying around from different sources, I mean, you could pretty much get on the internet and find an answer to any question that you may have had or even made up in your mind. So that was really frustrating. So, you know, we try to really kind of scale it down for the staff and really directed to just two sites, whether it was CDC or the Arizona Department of Health Services as their kind of go-to reliable information. And so I think once we did that, felt a little bit of the anxiety drop down. There was initial trepidation of people not wanting to work in this type of environment, which you see in these types of issues. You know, during Katrina, I think New Orleans lost like 40% of their staffing. People just walked away from their jobs. So we started watching vacation use and also sick leave use. And one of the things that I saw that was really kind of interesting was a lot of people were turning back their time. So they were canceling their vacations. Obviously, not a lot of places for us to go right now. But our sick time dropped pretty dramatically from comparison to last year at this time. You know, our firefighters are in it for the fight. They want to be here. They want to help their community. But there's a level of anxiety that goes along with that help. And so we reached out to make sure that our psychologist was available. And in fact, she had already gotten about five or eight calls from staff 
just kind of working through some issues. She reported back to us that none of them were in a extremist type situation that they needed to take some time off, that they were just trying to validate some of the things they were feeling. And I think that's the biggest thing about resiliency is validating that it's okay to have those feelings, that it's okay to be nervous, that it's okay to wonder, that it's okay to think about putting a tent up in your garage, like Chief Rivera said, to protect your family. All that is normal information that every human, whether you wear a badge or you don't, thinks about. So it's just validating those emotions and making sure that everybody feels safe and has the information they need. Dr. Rampasad, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's co-author on the stages of grief has come out recently and said this entire country is going through the stages of grief. How do you take that sense of what the entire country is going through, add on the additional layer of a first responder population that already has documented prior to this pandemic, high levels of stress, high levels of suicidality, where do you take that? How do you respond to that? Because this is new for all of us, including you. I think that that is a good analogy. I think that uh, the way that people are experiencing this pandemic is fitting to this denial or shock and denial or disbelief. And then it goes into her traditional steps of anger. And then you have grief and then bargaining and acceptance. I think in order to understand it in terms of that, we have to understand that there are differences generally in the way that men and women experience anger and depression. An example of that would be usually you'd find that men historically have a tendency towards expressing agitation, irritability, anger, when internally they might be feeling sad or some people might say depressed, but I, I just want to even start with sadness and it's not a clinical diagnosis of depression. When you have historically female counterparts who might be experiencing depression or signs of sadness when they might be feeling angry inside about something. This goes back now to our family situations that everybody is living with. And I think as Chief Rivera had said, we do have first responders who are camping out in motels right now or staying in their garage and tents or not seeing their family supports uh, like their spouses or their loved ones and their kids because they are almost in forced quarantine within their own quarters. How could somebody not have grief around losing their functioning as a parent and they feel guilty? Grief is something that they're experiencing a little bit differently, where they know that their spouse or their loved one is homeschooling their children and they are not able to help because they can't be around their child. Or they know that their loved one is pulling most of the weight at home, trying to take care of things in the home. This is a very marginalizing experience for people who rely on their family usually to be able to provide that source of comfort to them. So there are a lot of reasons why this grief cycle is fitting. And I think that it really comes from, you know, the family support system as well as their own perception of if they are sick. One of the most humbling things that recently people have been telling me is that they do not want to get tested because they don't want to waste a test on themselves when they perceive that other people would benefit more from it. It is such a classic first responder approach and thought justification system is very benevolent where other people might need it more. So I don't want to take a test because the tests are limited. And when that happens, then their family unit 
is unaware of if that first responder was impacted or affected by the virus. And so everything is left in limbo because of this 14-day window of an incubation period prior to expression of symptoms. Chief Louisi, back to you. In this environment, with the resources that you have, are you extra sensitive at this point to how your personnel are functioning? And how do you encourage access to things like Bulletproof and FireStrong and EAP at this time? I think it's just us being out there and creating that level of awareness for our first responders just to make sure that they understand that those resources still exist. We want you to use them. We encourage you to use them, whether by email or whether it's by our three times a week captain's meetings that we're having or our daily labor meetings that we're having, just to make sure that people feel like they're still connected And that's a hard part, too, that, you know, we took into consideration, but we think it's for the safety of the firefighters. We've locked down all of our stations. So nobody comes in or out of that station unless you're wearing a firefighter's uniform. And everybody has to be screened. So, I mean, even just their normal away from home place that they live for 24 or 48 hours, that's different for them. Because now it's completely locked down from outsiders coming in. They have to be screened prior to coming in to work. They have to be screened after their dinner. So a lot of that has changed for them. And we've taken away a lot of their safety creature comforts that they've had and at least try to enhance them to prevent further exposure. But again, it's, it's just that constant communication to make sure that they know that those resources are out there and they're not alone and they can reach out to any uh, those resources at any point in time. Now, at hospitals, they're taking nursing groups and dividing them into teams and none shall meet so to speak. The A team doesn't meet the B team. And then if the A team experiences an infection, the B team takes over. Is that a similar practice, Chief Rivera, to what you're doing in fire? Our our crews, they work in different shifts. And so they do meet, but they meet in groups of four or, or six, depending on what units they have available at that station. So they still have to give the pass down as far as what they did the day before, what they saw, what they had, what equipment they used or what needs to be replaced or fixed. Training, we're trying to do some more online training right now at this point, using different systems to be able to communicate with one another. Uh, On occasion, we are stopping by the station to visit with the different crews to talk about some of the changes, you know, as we've learned more about COVID-19, find out if there's anything that they need uh, for their families. Chief Louise said it earlier, just making sure that we communicate with them to know that we're here for them and just, you know, let them know that we're working on this as a team, you know, that we're providing everything that we can for them because it is a critical time of members having to reuse personal protective equipment and making sure they clean, you know, they've always cleaned, but to clean more than usual and everything that gets touched and not having visitors or family stop by, it really has changed our lifestyle and and kind of the culture that we have. We're a neighborhood fire station where people just stop in and visit and show kids around and give tours and talk about safety. But we're unable to do that right now. It's quite difficult as a team, as a whole. Yes, we, we are talking to one another, making sure everyone's good. Peer support reaches out to the members that run on some of the high stress incidents to ensure that, hey, they're okay, that they're reminded of the resources they have. You know, we've experienced the loss here at Surprise Fire Medical within the last 10 years, and it's not something that we want to experience again. So we just make sure that we open up and, and talk to one another and offer that support, take care of each other as a family. I'm going to move us to wish list mode. 
So I'm going to ask each of you in turn to be thinking about your wish list. What are the top one, two, or three things that you wish could happen right now if you could wave a magic wand so that first responders and your team could be better supported in the work they're doing right now? I'm going to start with Chief Luizzi. I could wave my magic wand. I would want more PPE, all kinds. I think that's something that, <laughs> this is kind of a joke, but as a paramedic for close to 30 years now, we were always taught to hoard things. <laughs> and so you would hoard equipment because you never know when something bad would happen and you would need that extra equipment. Well, here we are, something bad's happened and I just want to hoard more equipment for my staff. So that's one. I think number two, really just getting the understanding of what exactly this virus means for everybody because there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. I don't think we really return to a new normal, not at least for possibly two years or until a vaccine's created. And then I think number three, just for the public to understand that while it's frustrating, it is very important for us to listen to the medical experts in the world, and while you may not agree with some of them, this is their profession. They've spent many, many, many years studying and perfecting their profession and, and really getting a handle on what this is. The last pandemic that we've had to this extent was back in 1918, and there aren't many people that are still alive from there, at least not operating in a very high level of professional capacity. So we just have to be patient with one another and we have to work together to work through this because if we start to divide, then it's gonna make this process so much longer and so many more people are gonna be hurt or sick. Great points, great points indeed. Chief Rivera, you're allowed to amen to any of those or create your own list of three. What do you have for us? Well, definitely amen the uh, personal protective equipment. That's something that we all need. And- wish we had right now available to us. One of the things we're working on right now, too, is COVID antibody testing to see if we've had the virus. That's one of the big things. If we know that we've had it, then it's probably been through our house and gives a little bit more sense of security. I think that helps, but that's one of the things there. And beyond that, it's just making sure that everyone's safe and that we communicate and, you know, just try not to over communicate. There's a lot of changes, a lot of updates, a lot of things that happen. We'd like to keep all members in the know and informed on what we have going on and what's available to us. Dr. Rampasad, as you look out over both the Valley and the state and even the country, your top three? This is a tough one. From my perspective, from the mental health side of things, I would love to see people recognize their frustration that they are experiencing and share that frustration with somebody who you love or somebody who you trust. It doesn't have to be a mental health professional. It could be anybody that you trust. Through sharing that frustration, I think that we'll be able to see families stay intact. One of my major concerns through this has been fear of dissolution of families, which lead to bad retirements for people in public safety. And this could sometimes be because they quarantined themselves with other first responders. And as a result of it, they may have inappropriate boundaries and relationships with those fellow first responders because they cannot get that from their family members. So I would love for people to recognize that this is temporary, even if Chief Luisi is right and this last for two years, this is still a temporary time that we're going to be experiencing. And to not throw away or jeopardize your family relationships and the bonds that you're working very hard to maintain to build your retirement. 
by throwing it away during a time in crisis. Way too many times in, in moments of crisis, we've seen where people end up making rash decisions and impulsive decisions that go on to impact them later on. So I would love to see where people are really trying to slow things down, appreciate the time that they have now when things are slow, because you may never have this time back again to have a slow time in your career, as slow as we've had it right now during this period of time. And to embrace time with your family, even if you can't physically touch them, you can still do things with them. You could walk at a little distance, you could ride at a distance. I've seen a lot more families out and about now than I have ever before. And so I think that we need to start appreciating from a first responder perspective as well, that there are things that can be done to appreciate the time that we have currently. Melanie, how about you? You've been working alongside first responders for years now. If you had a top three wish list, what it would it look like? What Dr. Dara said actually hit really close to home for me, having a spouse that was in the military and seeing how those crisis moments can definitely apply extra pressure to families and even the after effects of those crisis moments. So even though our first responders at this specific time are not seeing enormous call volumes, there's still concerns that are coming up folks looking at them funny or being concerned that they may be carrying the virus, time away from family, all of those pieces. But I think what Dr. Dara said really resonates with me around our first responders and knowing that our divorce rates are already higher. Our family units already have challenges across first responders that it really is a great opportunity, not only first responders, but all of us to be able to really think through what are the things we can do? How can we bring our families closer together during this time? And then hopefully that extends to our neighbors and our communities and really being able to tackle this together. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you, Dr. Rampasad. And a special thank you to Chiefs Louise and Rivera for taking time to be with us at The Vitalist Spark. The four of you make a powerful team working to help our first responders to adapt, be well, and stay well amidst the demands of this profession and the challenges of COVID-19. Don't forget, our COVID-19 roundtable will be back next week. There will be a lot to digest and analyze as states, including Arizona, move forward with limited reopening steps and make strides to increase testing. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. There is so much to explore related to community health and well-being, including guests from across the state and national experts, too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. And like we mentioned above, we've got great news on that front. The Vitalist Spark is now available on Spotify, and you can subscribe to be notified of new episodes there too. In the world of podcasts, you can give us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overdrive, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.